Good morning. Yes, the team, I'm not on. Yes, the team arrived. I'm still not on. You there? Hello, hello. Test one, two. Maybe it's not working. I could do it without it. I promise. By the by, the grace of the Lord, He has given me clean lungs and a vo- and a voice that's not afraid to speak up a little bit. Uh, y'all, the people in the front though would probably be blasted away with this shrill, high-pitched voice that I have. It is the voice God's given me, though, so I am thankful for it. It is good to see everybody today. We are very thankful that the Taiwan team did make it, uh, and uh, thankful for God's provisions and how he has worked uh, mightily already, and looking forward to what he's going to do with this team all week. Uh, I know there was an especially uh, happy little uh, missionary child, Ezra, that was very, very happy uh, because my son at the last minute got put on the team, uh, my 14-year-old Caleb, and he shows up and Ezra's like, my friend's here. And it was great. We don't understand, uh, beloved, just how much of a sacrifice it is for missionary children, uh, their children in specifics. If you think about it, they are uprooted from a home where all their friends are and their church family, and they are taken to a foreign land, and they don't have friends. They don't have friends until they can learn the language, and even when they learn the language, it's definitely very different, and there's not a lot of Christians there, so obviously it's a struggle. So let's pray for them especially, right? Pray for those missionary children, the Gear family, just thankful that the Lord has provided that little blessing for uh, little Ezra. And I think there's some girls there that are happy to see Caleb, too, but we won't talk about that one. It seems like each generation points to the next generation as more evil than their own generation. Isn't that true? Have you ever been with that conversation? I remember having that conversation with some of my grandparents once and said, Man, I'll tell you what, this generation that's coming along now... Oh, they are evil, wicked. The baby boomer said Generation X was evil, wicked generation. Generation, uh, the, generation X says the millennials are evil and wicked. And the millennials have started saying Generation Z is evil and wicked. I can testify they're all evil. But what does the Bible say about an evil generation? How does the Bible describe an evil generation? Notice in our passage, there's a key word that's mentioned four times. It's the word generation. In verse 39, verse 39, Jesus says, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Then verse 41, look at it. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented of the pre- at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then there's verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then finally, in verse 45, then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. Then it go, they go in it, live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. The generation Jesus is specifically referring to here is his generation at his first advent. 
the Jews that were around him, the generation of Jews that he was with, the Jewish people he had came to and presented himself to, and that John the Baptist had called to repent in preparation for Jesus. The Jewish generation that were led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious elites, they were an evil generation, as Jesus will point out in our passage today. As we read through the Bible, we don't find many generations that appear to be righteous generations, do we? None, in fact, are perfectly righteous, are there? But there are some generations that directionally you could say there's maybe some revivals that happen, right? There are some small pockets of generations throughout the history of the world where people repented and it, it seems as though a general direction of that society was repentant and therefore declared righteous by God and not as evil as the rest. Like maybe the... To a degree, the children of Israel under Joshua, there was some repentance then. Or, to a degree, some of the few kings under the, under Ju, or during Judah's reign, there were a few, Hezekiah, uh, Josiah, there were some re- times of repentance. But again, there was still wickedness. Maybe to a degree, and we see it in our passage today, Nineveh, right? Nineveh, there appears to be a generation where they repented. And directionally, they appeared to look to serve God. And then finally maybe Ezra and Nehemiah's day when they had built the, rebuilt the wall and the, they broke out into repentance when they recognized their sinfulness. Israel was, however, one evil generation after the next as a whole, right? They treated, They traded, and this especially in this generation that Jesus is talking about, They traded their Messiah for a murdering thief, Barnabas. And they said they were more committed to Caesar than Jesus. Crucify him. Today, we're going to see what an evil generation is all about. We're going to see the characteristics of an evil generation that we must all avoid. We will learn what an evil generation is and how we can avoid being like this evil generation. We should not take this message lightly. Everyone must see our need and turn to the Lord to deliver us from this evil state. I have to confess, when uh, Bob was reading Jonah chapter 3, I was thinking of our country. How about you? I was thinking, man, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if our country broke out into repentance? Do you understand what that would look like? If our whole country fell on their face faces and acknowledge their sinfulness before God. We need that, don't we? We are an evil generation, and the generations before, we're all evil generations. We'll see it. The four characteristics, you could say, they, we look just like it. We'll see it. So today in our passage, we see four characteristics of an evil generation to avoid by the grace of God. We'll see first that an evil generation seeks a sign. It seeks a sign. Second, an evil generation fails to repent. And then final, a third, we'll see an evil generation fails to seek wisdom. And finally, we'll see an evil generation fails to genuinely change. Fails to genuinely change. We'll talk about that as we go through it. Let's walk down through it. So, let's look at these four characteristics. First, an evil generation seeks a sign. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the Belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The generation Jesus is addressing is the Jewish generation led by the Pharisees and the religious elites that were into works righteousness and self-righteousness, correct? They were the same ones who were attributing His miracles to Satan's work. They were saying, He does this by the power of Beelzebul. 
And they had asked Jesus here for a sign after Jesus had just done what? A sign. He had healed a deaf, blind, demon-possessed man. They're saying, giving us a sign, but didn't he just do that? Arguably, he's ta- they're talking about a sign from heaven. As Luke chapter 11, verse 16 talks about a, a, a sign from heaven, is the parallel passage to this, Jesus rebukes them for this. They wanted a supernatural sign that came from heaven. Jesus calls their generation an evil and adulterous generation in light of their plea for a sign from heaven. What does this mean, an evil and adulterous generation? Was adultery the problem? Well, no, not physical adultery. That's not probably what he was talking about. He's talking about spiritual adultery. This is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Adultery here is most likely a reference to embracing a false god in place of the God of the Bible. Idolatry was often called adultery in the Old Testament. The Jewish generation of Jesus' day as a whole were evil and had turned their back on the one true God of Israel for a man-made God. They said their father was Abraham and that God was their God, but the God that they were following was not the God of the Bible. The God that they were following was what? A God that accepted them based on their self-righteous works. That was a man-made God. They had made a God in their own minds. And they were committing adultery with that God that accepted them by doing good works. The fact was, Jesus himself was the one true incarnate God. He was there in their midst. They should have noticed it. They should have seen it. He was doing sign after sign after sign after sign. And every time he spoke, he spoke as one having authority as we know. He was the God-man. And he was a supernatural miracle in a sense from heaven, wasn't he? He was the sign from heaven, wasn't he? He was God incarnate, born of a virgin. But they were blind to who was right in front of them. Oh, beloved, an evil generation seeks a sign when the sign is right in front of them. Jesus' rebuke of them explains that His coming death, burial, and resurrection would be the one and ultimate sign. His death, burial, and resurrection is what He alludes to here. Would be the ultimate sign. And it would be a sign that they would also do what? Reject. As we know, the Pharisees and religious elites did what when His grave was found to be empty? What did they do? They crafted a lie. They covered it up. Even though it was real and true that Jesus had bodily resurrected from the grave, they lied and they covered it up. And they paid off some guards. And no number of signs from heaven were going to change their evil hearts. They were an evil generation who sought signs instead of believing in the incarnate God that was speaking to them. Listen to me, beloved. The problem with seeking signs is it reveals the wickedness of the seeker's heart. The revelation of God is overwhelming. Hear me, and I want you to listen closely. If you say, show me a sign that you really exist, if you've ever thought that or said that, That is exposing the evilness of your heart. You say, what? If you say, I just want to see a sign. If I could just see one sign, then I'd believe. It's exposing the evilness of your heart. You're like, what are you talking about? Romans 1 makes it very clear that God has revealed Himself to us through creation. There are overwhelming signs everywhere we look. Evidence is extreme. It shows itself all the time. But what does our heart do? Show me a sign. Give me proof. 
A heart that is rejecting that's already there. It's already evident to us. How much more were the evil generation when Jesus himself was standing in their midst? This was an evil generation, wasn't it? The problem is not, listen closely, the problem is not the amount of revelation. Very important for you to get this. The problem is the heart. An evil generation is evil because they have evil hearts. And no amount of signs or proof or evidence is going to change an evil heart. Jesus' point here is a miracle, the miracle of Jonah being in a big fish and being supernaturally you know, rescued and redirected to Nineveh will be repeated in a new way, a spectacular way. And what would that new way be? Jesus would die and then rise from the dead. But very important, the main point is this. The resurrection of Jesus is not going to be enough even to change the evil heart of the nature of the people. Only gen- the only generation that t- repented with less revelation was what? Nineveh. They had less revelation. They didn't have the incarnate Son of God in their midst. His point is slamming their idea that they think, give me a sign and therefore what? We'll believe. Just a side note, this is used by some of the critics of the Bible. The three days and three nights is not to be taken literally as three full days and three nights Jesus would be in the ground. And I know some of you might argue with me, but I believe the calendar does point to this two and a half days. And you're like, well, why did it do it this way? And why did he say that that way? And why was it that if he died on Friday and he rose on Sunday, why that's not three days and three nights in the ground? Well, I think you're missing the point of what Jesus was trying to make in this story anyway. He was comparing it to Jonah and the miracle. He wasn't trying to say, count on your calendar, three days, three nights. That was a Jewish way of reckoning. Three days is any portion of a day. It would be a full day. And he's saying it's a day. That was his thing. Now, we can argue back and forth, and you can argue, no, it was Wednesday or Thursday that he died or whatever, but... I think the Bible makes it very clear that that's not the point of this passage anyway. The main idea is what? No amount of miracles is going to change a heart. Even the miracle of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. What did they do when he died, rose from the dead? They covered it up, they lied, they paid off the guards. The main point wasn't the exact length of the miracle as much as the main purpose of the two miracles. Both were supernatural revelations of God and His glory. What Jonah did and what happened to Jonah was a miracle, wasn't it? And he brought message to the Ninevites. They could have been on a ship going the other way. He brought a message and they repented. Instead, in this case, Jesus was rejected by his own people. So let me ask you a question. How does this apply to us? How does this fit in us? Well, have you ever witnessed to a person and the person said, give me proof that God exists. Just give me a sign, a proof who Jesus is and what he said he was. You know, the charismatic movement often uses these signs in some way to somehow invoke or produce faith. Beloved, even if you give them evidence after evidence after evidence, it's never enough, is it? Often it's what? I want a bigger sign or more proof or that's not good enough, right? Am I wrong? This is what an evil generation does. It wants signs. It wants miracles. It wants proof. Even though the evidence is overwhelming right in their face. The problem is not the quality of the evidence. 
The evidence of God's existence is there, and the Son's incarnation is overwhelming. It's everywhere. As Psalm 19 states, what? There are silent voices that continue on and on and on and on and on, that proclaim the glories of God. That's what the creation does. Even their own law of God that's written on their heart shows them that there is a morality. There's a right and a wrong. God put that on our hearts, the conscience. Every generation, however, rejects this evidence. And they're headed to hell apart from what? The grace of God. The grace of God. There is implication for us in this. Good works or kind acts don't save people. That's a fact. Now, does that mean we should be harsh to each other? No, we should love each other because we believe that God tells us to do this. Right? We can be the kindest neighbors. We can be the most sacrificial people. We can do unimaginable sacrificial acts for the lost loved ones, our lost old ones. We can do things and they'll say, you are absolutely crazy. Why are you doing this? And they'll open that door and you'll say, because Jesus loves me. And they'll say, okay. Listen, seeing evidence does not bring faith. Seeing signs does not bring faith. Just all this does is often condemn them more. They are without excuse. Ultimately, it will take a supernatural miracle. Yes. A miracle of God's grace working through the gospel in a person to cause them to believe. That's the only thing that takes the blinders off. This doesn't mean God doesn't use sacrificial love to convict people. It does. It will lump burning coals on their head. There are several passages that point to this. And when the gospel is empowered by the spirit, great, spirit grace acts in our soul, then people recognize and they glorify God, as 1 Peter states. Right? But ultimately, what has to happen? God has to work. So the, the natural question is, is what is happening with these Pharisees and Sadducees in this evil generation that's standing right in front of them? This is really hard. But ultimately, God was turning them over to the lusts of their hearts, their sin. And they were rejecting the Messiah. But in their rejection, he was doing what? Providing a way for the Gentile to be what? Have hope. That's a wild thought. Now, in your mind, you're probably all thinking, well, that sounds a little bit like Romans 9. Yes, it does. So why are we here today? Why are we saved, those that have believed? Why are we here and we worship Jesus and we say he's great? Why aren't we this evil generation? Answer, grace. Grace. We're here only because of God. And His grace working in our lives. We're no better than the people that we're around. The evil generation that we live with. If you've embraced who Jesus is and what He's done, you should do one thing. Praise God. Not say, man, I did it. If you say, I did it, you've done, you haven't done it. You're still back there in the evil generation. Because that's what the Pharisees said. They said, we did it. Beloved, do you understand the implications for our evangelism? You go share the gospel with somebody. You could have Jesus standing right in front of them. Doing miracle after miracle after miracle. And they would look at you in your face and say, that's not Jesus. I don't believe in him. That's what this evil generation is. Now, we have another choice here, by the way. We can go down the road of bad theology. The bad theology says, 
Well, no, the Jewish people were just really bad. They were worse than me. And they were worse than my neighbors. And they were worse than my family. They were an evil generation, but we're not evil like them. If Jesus was here, we would believe, right? No. No. That's not the point of Matthew. Matthew's showing what? People need Jesus. They need the Lord to work in their heart because everybody's an evil generation. This is the mind of man. Why do you love the Word of God? Answer, grace. Why do you long to see Jesus? Answer, grace. Why do you hate your sin, believer? Why do you want to seek and serve Jesus, believer? Why do you want to be with Him forever? Why do you find your joy in Him? Answer, grace. Unmerited favor, unmerited favor, unmerited favor. Why are we here today? Grace. Why do you believe in the Trinity? Grace. Why do you believe this is the Word of God? Grace. Why do you believe this tells you all about who Jesus is? Grace. Who's an evil generation? We are. Why do we believe? Grace. This is it. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, right? Amazing grace. Why do I have my wife on the other side of the planet with one of my children when she could be here helping me get through morning with Samuel? Grace! I love you, Samuel. (laughs) So first we see an evil generation seeks what? A sign. Second, we see an evil generation fails to repent. Fails to repent. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation. So, in other words, both generations are going to stand before God at the judgment and will condemn it. The one, the Nineveh, Ninevites, will condemn the Jews who had rejected their Messiah, that evil generation. At the judgment, they will condemn them and say, Hey, what are you doing? You have nobody to blame but what? Yourself. You had revelation. Because it repented at the preaching of Jonah. They got it. They turned to God. They embraced God. Even though they were a Gentile nation. In the Old Testament. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus points to the Ninevites as an example of how people should respond to the revelation of God. He states the repentant Ninevites will stand in judgment over the generation of the Jewish people who rejected their Messiah. Now, when you read the story of Jonah, I don't know about you, but one observation really surprises me every time I read through it and I'm just thinking through it. In chapter 3 especially. Look over at Jonah chapter 3. The very limited amount of revelation it appears that Jonah gave to the people always jumps off the page at me. How big was the city? Somebody tell me how big the city was. Three days walk. Three days walk. How far did Jonah walk? One day. What did he say? Judgment's coming. God's going to wipe you out. God's going to wipe this place out. Judgment's coming. One day's walk. Three days journey on that city. And what happens? The whole city repents. What happened? Those Ninevites, they were particularly prone to like God's revelation. 
Those Ninevites, you know, they must have really had some good in their soul. Do you understand who the Ninevites were? That's the capital of Assyria. The ones that brutalized nation after nation after nation. When they would go into a nation and take them over, you know what they'd do? They'd take all the men of the city, they would take them out into the desert and bury them up to their heads, alive. And let the birds peck their heads. Oh yeah, those are some really nice people there in Assyria. They were wretched, wicked, an evil generation. And yet what happens? Verse 4, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Y'all are going down. Now, I have to admit to you, I wonder, did Jonah say more? I, I, I think he said a little bit more. I wonder if they started asking him questions and he began to give a little bit more. We do know, though, that Jonah was not one of these guys that really wanted to give a lot of information and really didn't like the people he was preaching to, right? I mean, he never seemed to really get that, even at the end of the book. By the end of the book, you're wondering, did he ever get it? Did he ever really love the Ninevites? It appears that by the end, he still hated the Ninevites. This was a... This was a prophet of God telling truth, but I'm fairly sure he the limited amount that's mentioned in verse 4 is a good synopsis of his small amount of information he gave them. I mean, there isn't long sermons listed in Jonah 3. There are long sermons, by the way, by, and long words from Jonah in chapter 2 when he's talking about his own sin and repenting. So it's not that it couldn't be there, right? I think it's emblematic and emblematic of his sermon. It was probably, it would have been like this. You know, y'all have heard the sermon where the pastor gets up in the pulpit and he says, love your neighbor and sits down. And he did that three times. Y'all have heard that illustration before, right? Well, here's the sermon this time. It would be, repent, you're going to die. Can you imagine? That's a lot of revelation. Thus says God, you're going to die. You're an evil generation. Can you imagine? The deacons would run me off if that was my sermon. Right? Everybody would run me off. Y'all would leave. (laughs) All we said was repent every week. Said it. Repent, you're going to die. Forty days, you're going to die. What happened though? They repented. They repented. How much revelation did they have? Very little. And it went all over the city. Three days journey. It went all the way to the king. And what did the king do? Verse 7. He issued a proclamation and and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let man call on God earnestly that each man may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that they, that we will not perish. Wow. Ninevites. The Ninevites didn't have the Abrahamic covenant, beloved. They didn't have a promise that they were going to be a chosen people that God was going to protect them. They weren't in the promised land. 
They didn't have the promises of land, seed, and blessing. They were a pagan people who brought fear upon God's people. And God had said, anybody that curses my people, I will curse. And Jonah knew it. (laughs) And Jonah didn't like them. And eventually they were going to come and destroy Israel. Nothing in these people says this is a good generation. Nothing in them. But what did they do? They repented, as our passage says, at the preaching of Jonah. I think it's significant that we understand fully that repentance is the distinguishing characteristic of a true believer. It really is. It distinguishes between an evil generation and a good generation. And a generation that does not repent is an evil generation. And a, a repentant generation is a good generation. Do they turn from their sin when confronted with the revelation of God? Yes, they do. That's what Ninevites did. Do they humbly seek forgiveness in the God of the Bible? Do they trust in God to deliver them? That's what the Ninevites did. But the evil generation didn't. And that goes to every single one of us in the room, doesn't it? When faced with the holy and true God for who He is, do we repent? Are we turning to God and owning our sin personally? I just want to challenge you. I know this is somewhat harsh today, but you got to hear this. This is so important. Listen, you're going to come to a church that we talk about repentance all the time. <laughs> you know why? Because that's the characteristic of somebody that knows who God is. We have to, don't we? It's our life, isn't it? We are repenting people, aren't we? All the time, aren't we? And we're not out there saying, we're better than them. They need to fix things. We're saying, we're them. We need to fix it. We need our hearts changed. Oh, God, help me. An evil generation, however, seeks to self-cleanse. An evil generation rejects the revelation of God. However, a righteous generation seeks to, for God to cleanse them. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Who does the cleansing? God does. God does for repentant people. A righteous generation is humble and embraces God's revelation. Even when we don't get it, even when we don't understand it, even when we don't like it. I have to admit the thought crossed my mind once this week and Again, I have to think on what's true, and I had to take the thought captive. And, but there's an element where God allows these thoughts to come in just to kind of to get me to be on my knees. I, I thought, man, can you imagine if my wife and Caleb did not make it on the airplane? What in the world would happen to me? Oh, wow, this would be impossible. And then I thought, Job, I would rip my garments and say, naked I came into this world. With nothing, make it all go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise God. He's the only one I have. Have nothing. It's really not about any of this here, is it? It's about having Him and knowing Him. and Being satisfied with Him. The men of Nineveh understood. And they would stand, they will stand with the generation at this judgment. But Jesus' words jump off the page at the end here. Look at it. Look at it. 
His comparison of the generation with the Ninevites, he says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Oh, man. That should have absolutely thrown the Pharisees to the ground. Think of what happened when the Ninevites spoke, when, when Jonah spoke. What did the Ninevites do? They put sackcloth on. They fell on the ground. They repented, right? And he says, wait, there's something greater than Jonah here. Who's the greater? Him. Him. They should have fallen on their faces. Oh no, God incarnate's here. But an evil generation rejects the revelation of God as revealed in the Bible. Listen, our hearts want a God that is not the God of the Bible. We're born with a, with a desire for a God that doesn't line up with Scripture. Everybody is born with that heart. But God, by His grace, works through the gospel to convert some of us on this planet. And we embrace Him. We know he is greater than Jonah, right? Because he is the God that Jonah talked about. Jesus exclaims, Behold, listen up, pay attention, something greater than Jonah is here. We know Jesus is the incarnate Word of God, isn't he? He's the revelation of God in flesh. As John 1.18 states, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He explained Him. What's that? Jesus is the explanation of the unseen God, because He is the incarnate God. By the way, if Jesus says that God is a trinity, if God, the only way to God is through Him, then what do we have to go with? What He says. He was... And is and will always be the greatest revelation of God that man has ever seen. He is God incarnate. He is love incarnate. He is the creator incarnate. He is the ultimate son from heaven. The sign from heaven. And he died and rose from the dead on the third day. And he ascended to heaven and one day he's coming back. Jesus was a Jewish man, the incarnate God, and he was unlike Jonah in that he actually really cared for the people he was preaching to and the world that he came to save. Isn't Jesus wonderful? He actually loves us. Jesus not only brought the message, he was the message. But the evil generation failed to repent and believe in Him. And only a remnant believe, believed in Him. So how about us? How about you? What do you do with the revelation of Jesus Christ found in the Bible? Will we humbly turn to Him and embrace Him? Will we be like the king of Nineveh or the Pharisees? Will we be called... On, or will we call on God earnestly with broken hearts and humble hearts, turn from our wicked ways and ask for the violence which we deserve to be spared? Will we trust in Jesus, the one who took our wrath, the judgment we deserve? Will we embrace the incarnate Word of God? Do you trust in Him? If not, Everybody who does stand with him will stand in judgment over us who heard this truth and rejected it. So Jesus explains an evil generation seeks a sign. Next, we learn an evil generation fails to repent. And third, we see an evil generation fails to seek wisdom. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So, notice the distinguishing feature of the queen of the south and the evil generation Jesus was confronting. She came from the ends of the earth 
to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This must have grated on the nerves of the Pharisees, wouldn't it? I mean, think about the two illustrations he's using here for the Pharisees. What's he using? First, he used the Ninevites, which were what? Gentile, pagans. And actually, some of the early part of that generation, they repented, but after that generation, they actually what? Came in and destroyed a lot of their family members. What do you think they thought of the Ninevites? Oh, they hated them. The Pharisees hated them. They were pagans, right? Well, what about the Queen of the South? Uh, She was from southern Arabia, 1,200 miles south most likely, Sheba. They hated them too because they were more of those that had come against them. But Jesus uses them as an illustration of what? Of those that really aren't an evil generation. You are an evil generation. They aren't. Can you imagine? Look at 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 9. We'll just read the story. It'll give you the context. (coughs) It's really a great little story. In 2 Chronicles 9, 1, it states, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with difficult questions. She had a very large retinue with, I've never noticed that word, retinue, with camels carrying spices and a large amount of gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was on her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from Solomon, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house which he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his ministers and their attire, his cupbearers and their attire, and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. She was breathless. And then she said to the king, It was true. It was a true report, which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe their reports. Until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told to me. You surpassed the report that I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are your servants who stand before you continually. Hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, your God who delighted in you in setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and very great amounts of spices and precious stones. There had never been spice like that which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. You think she got it? No, she got it. Sheba embraced the wisdom Solomon had spoken. In fact, she appears to embrace the God Solomon received his wisdom from. She got it. By the way, what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. It appears that she got it. She understood where his wisdom came from. She what? Feared the Lord, it appears. And praised God. Blessed be the Lord God who delighted in you and setting you on the throne. So question, why did Queen Sheba get it? Was Sheba an especially wise woman? Was she intellectual? Was Sheba born good? No. God was obviously at work in this lady. He was granting grace to this lady. And she traveled to hear the wisdom. And she even embraced the God who is all-wise and all-knowing and sovereign over all, right? Why? Because she feared the Lord. But the evil generation that Jesus is speaking to can be in the presence of God Himself 
and still not embrace that wisdom. That is shocking. Again, the implications are numerous for us, but we'll close here. Beloved, why do we get it? Why are we here? Why do we understand what wisdom is? Why do I love the book of Proverbs? Why do I love the book of Ecclesiastes? Why do I find so much joy in just reading the scriptures? Why do I enjoy Christ so much? Why is He everything to me? His amazing grace. His glorious grace that saves wretched sinners like us. This drives me to my knees, doesn't it? This makes me say, how are my kids going to come to know you? You alone, Lord. You alone can give them wisdom. Oh, God, save my kids. What about my relatives, my loved ones that don't know you? What about them? You alone, God, you alone. You alone are the one that can give them grace. You alone can make their eyes see. What about all my sin? What about all my sin? Why would you show me this glorious grace that my sin can be paid for by Christ? Why? Grace. Grace. Oh, what a God of grace He is, isn't He? There is nothing better than our God. Our God reigns in the heavens and He gives grace to wicked, evil generations like us. What a good God, right? This is why we'll go to the other ends of the planet. This is why we'll go anywhere and do anything that King Jesus says for us to do. Because He showed us. He opened the eyes of our heart. Listen. You will be an evil generation unless regeneration happens. You cannot love God without God regenerating your heart. Do you believe? Do you trust Him? If so, it's because of Him. And He gets all glory and praise and honor. Let's worship Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your kindness towards us sinners, an evil generation. why you would show grace to us, a remnant in this in kindness is perfectly understandable.